0: Hey, and Mr. Dan Morganti. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for joining us. So first of all, thanks to everyone who's been subscribing during Radiothon. You've still got a little window to subscribe up to Wednesday, the 30th of September. We appreciate all of you. Thanks for joining the family. Tonight on Byte, we explore Aussie attitudes to artificial intelligence. How do we do that? Well, we're chatting to a researcher from Monash University who's going to help us explore the results of a survey that they conducted nationally. All sorts of interesting results to drill into there, so stick around for that a bit later in the show. Before we get there, a few things happening in IT news on the home front. Um, What's been going on with the
1: NBN, Laura? Well, NBN has released quite a lot of news today, and part of the news is that they are planning on doing some significant upgrades to the network, including, I believe, almost 50% of their existing customers will be getting fiber to the premises, which is the gold standard. That's what you want. That is what you want. (laughs) Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, detail going on here. So aside from connecting straight to your home, we're also seeing upgrades to their networks, including fiber to the node, um, fiber to the curb, and the hybrid fiber coaxial networks. So these are the bits that go from the server's take the bits around the world before they get anywhere near your house um but yes there's a significant amount of um network upgrading and work that needs to happen there and they've um they've just committed to doing it between now and i believe 2023 2024 um for anyone who's read the news more strongly than i have feel free to update me um so uh, yeah, yeah no go laura I was going to say, if you were curious to know if you did, in fact, win the NBN lottery, there is a fun little widget on the (laughs) ABC News site where you can actually pop in your address and see if you're one of the premises that's been committed to getting that upgrade. So if you pop onto abc.net.au and look for their NBN news, you'll be able to find that pretty easily.
2: Are you one of the lucky few?
1: Uh, I am not a winner, but I do already have fiber to the curb, which is pretty good I will say we we did get it finally in January we were some of the latest people to get it Mm. and it has been a major upgrade especially considering lockdown this year so we were very relieved that happened just before all this COVID nonsense forced us into our domicile never to see the light of yeah
0: in your household that is vital service it's so interesting that they've done this and that it's really taken, I think, the need for them to create a lot of job stimulus in the economy for them to uh, come around to this. They're expecting that this will create uh, 25,000 jobs in the next two years across a whole range of industries, including construction, engineering, transport and project management. It's definitely great news and we don't want to begrudge them that, but gosh, it should have happened a lot sooner. Yeah, yeah
1: you, you can you can understand that uh, Kevin Rudd coming out and being like, hey, this is pretty much the plan I put forward into 2000. (laughs) 2009 he's allowed a little bit of snark let's put it that way this (laughs) this is something of a a backflip from from the original plans that we got um but hey everyone getting faster internet in australia is worth celebrating regardless of how we got there
0: absolutely Hey, so something else in local news. There's been there have been a few revelations around Foxtel and some of the ways that they've benefited from fast-tracked federal government funds. This has come out under a Freedom of Information request or a series of requests. And um, communications department staff apparently helped fast track 17.5 million in taxpayer funds for the company expediting the normal federal cabinet processes for approval. Um, This is particularly scandalous when you think of the continued axing of funding for the ABC and how little they operate on to see all of this um, public money going into a private company. Um, So it's well worth looking at this. so it's partly the speed with which they were awarded a $10 million extension to an existing $30 million contract. Uh, but neither payment was made to the company. Um, uh, neither of the payments made to the company were put out to any form of competitive tender. So it's pretty, it's um, a little problematic.
2: It, uh, it just seems yeah. to me like the fat kid who, like, for the, the first time in their life hasn't been given a suite and everyone else got a suite, and they're pointing at everyone, going, "I want that suite as well." And the the some of the emails that I say as well, like um, Patrick Delaney, the head of um, Foxtel, uh, the, an email saying he's not he's not receiving everything he requested. He's going to be upset. Yeah. Like.
0: Yeah, so So, the context is that this is part of a $100 million pandemic rescue package, which was announced in April this year, with support for struggling regional newspapers and a $41 million tax rebate for free-to-air TV and radio broadcasters. And at that point, that's the point when Foxtel went, we've been left out and we are deeply
1: displeased. Yeah,
2: it's, Yeah. uh, it's terrible. Uh, it, 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 um, the, the
1: the speed with which they they went from we're unhappy to suddenly we've got quite a lot more money was also alarmingly fast. Um, as I'm interpreting this string of emails that they talk through in this piece, it looks like it's like barely ten days from them essentially whinging that they didn't get like a handout in this package to them suddenly having an extra chunk of cash, Um, which is like you can imagine how long it would take for any regional broadcaster, for the ABC, for just about any other news media outlet to go from putting in an application or trying to get some support to the time they would see those funds. It would be months, if not years.
0: And and it sounds bad, right, but it it turns out that according to federal cabinet's own rules, it actually is bad because they're breaking what's called the 10-day rule, which was intended to improve governance by making sure that cabinet gives enough time to assess submissions um, to prevent exactly this sort of thing, like this sort of um, expediting of cash doesn't allow enough oversight by their own standards. Anyway, well worth reading into if you're interested in um, media ownership in Australia. And
2: at least we'll know that uh, reruns of Seinfeld will be safe for a little while longer.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure how well those have aged, these yeah. Seinfeld fans. Uh, it was amazing in its time. So, on to the, the future of social media, perhaps. What is going on with TikTok? Dan, have you gotten across this?
2: Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm not a big user of TikTok. What about you guys?
1: Oh, look, I'm too old for that, Dan. (laughs) I'm going to be totally honest. I have TikTok installed on my phone, but I don't have an account. What sort of... Okay, I was going to say, what sort of security advocate are you, Laura? (laughs) I I am a totally half-assed security advocate in that... (laughs) I have a few friends who specifically pick out TikToks of funny cats and dogs, and this is the only way I can see them easily. Um, but that said, I refuse to create an account with them because I don't want them to be able to like plug into all of my historical data online. So I'm, I, it's it's a terrible compromise. But that said, <laughs> TikTok is used by many, many people over the world, including lots of young people, especially in the U.S. as well as here. Um, so the, the future of the company really matters. So there's been a, a change in this, like, ownership stoush. Um, Dan, do you want to, like, tell us a bit more about who's entered the ring for Possibly getting a reasonable chunk of TikTok?
2: Yeah. So US computer firm uh, Oracle uh, and the retailer Walmart uh, pro- proposed a joint venture um, called TikTok Global, which would see customer data move to US controlled infrastructure, which um, would allow TikTok to continue operating in the US, um, which comes after Trump had earlier ordered TikTok to be removed from mobile app stores, and um, but enforcement of the order could, uh, could be delayed if the... Oracle, Walmart deal goes ahead. Um,
0: yeah, what's really interesting, I think, is how much is not answered by the news that's come out to date uh, because things keep changing every time we see this reported on. It's like, at first, we're going to ban TikTok. No, no, we're going to let a US company own it and then it'll be okay. Wait a second, if ByteDance still has control of the new company, then that's still not going to be okay and we're going to get it out of here. Um how much is the deal costing people? We don't know. You know, things keep going back and forth. Um, what's the joint venture agreement look like? Things keep going
1: back and forth. It's um, yeah, Trump, it's a yeah. challenge. The, the challenge of reporting on Trump when what he thinks about the world changes every five seconds is probably adding to the complexity here. Um, <laughs> but one thing that was reported just now, which is a weird additional... It, it, it almost seems to me like an intentional effort to sort of collapse this deal, is Trump saying he wants, in addition to um, Oracle and Walmart paying a significant amount, $12 billion, to have a stake in this TikTok global venture, he wants them to also throw in $5 billion just for him um, to create an education fund to teach American children the real history of our country, in inverted commas. It's no Bell fund, is it? Yeah. Well, look... You can imagine that if you're a big tech co. and you're chucking six billion towards something, then saying, "Oh, hey, just throw another two and a half billion in there into the pot." It's a it's a significant ask, and you know, like no one has a lot of spare operating cash at the moment. It's a bit of a tough time for just about everybody. Um, look, I'm not saying that they can't afford it, but I would be surprised if they agreed to that. And if they didn't, that's an easy way for him to kibosh the deal.
0: Yeah, it's um, been interesting reading some of the analysis of, uh, of business people calling this a shakedown and saying mm. that Putin does this sort of stuff all the time and Trump's trying to do it but not doing it very well. It's like, oh, that is some harsh analysis uh, thrown down by Benedict Evans there, um, well worth reading his newsletter.
2: And that's what's happening with TikTok until Trump decides that he wants to do something else with it.
0: That's right. And who's to say that Oracle and Walmart will be any better with managing um, the data of their consumers than ByteDancer?
1: Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app.
0: Hey, so there's been massive news this week with Reddit. Um, They have made some changes to how they handle hate speech over time. Moderation on Reddit has always been a massive issue for them. Uh, Some of our listeners might have read the brilliant long-form article, uh, The Punishing Ecstasy of Being a Reddit Moderator, that was on Wired last year. Um, Laura, have you been following the changes they've been making?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Warren and I were able to report on it when they first went through that big round of culling. So you may have heard that a couple of really popular subreddits, including, are the Donald and, um, oh, what is the other one? Uh, maybe are Red. Red Scare, which is based on a popular podcast, um, but has weirdly attracted some very vitriolic, very problematic speech. Um, and they they did, in fact, go through and ban a number of um, problematic subreddits. And interestingly, what they've found um, subsequent to that ban is that there's actually been a noticeable decrease in toxic comments. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a strong um, piece of evidence that setting intentions and making it clear what the boundaries are is actually a, a reasonably good way to moderate speech, especially if there are actual consequences. Um, so in the piece we're looking at, we can see a graph where you can see the time subsequent to this wave of banning. And you can see like this like lovely little chart where the um, the toxic comments just like kind of float down and down um, day on day, which is yeah, it's pretty strong, strong um, feedback. Um, and, and if you're not sure what is toxic speech or what are what sorts of things are they talking about and what were they looking to ban in terms of these subreddits, um, they, they had three major categories. Um, so one is subreddits with names and descriptions that are inherently hateful, so words that are considered pejoratives um, or just, you know, like wolf whistles for white supremacy, that sort of thing. Um, the second type is subreddits with a large fraction of hateful content, and the third is subreddits that positively engage with hateful content. So that could be a good description of the Red Scare podcast. Um, so so they may themselves not actually be trying to push these agendas, but they don't necessarily... Um, make it hard to have those conversations in their subreddit either. So they may just be very permissive moderators, very like lax, or also just consider this as part of free speech. But then Reddit has said, we we think this has gone beyond that kind of free speech, um, acceptable free speech space into something we really don't want to encourage or host on our platform. Um, Is anyone else so, uh, look, I'm a pretty obsessive Reddit user. I, I'm going to admit it. It's probably a little bit bad for my brain. I'm sure I have <laughs> some some like weird nightmares, to be honest. I read a little bit of, am I the asshole before going to sleep? And that sometimes finds its <laughs> way into my dreams. Uh... Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really interesting news. And I think it's perhaps positive for us to consider in terms of what is possible to do um, in uh, in crafting communities i'm
2: i'm a big reddit user as well just a lurker I'm, I'm don't post or anything but it's like this isn't the first time that reddit has tried to take care of these issues like uh, maybe a year or two ago they really tried to crack down on um, incel subreddits and you know harmful um, subreddits directed towards young men and who um, were sexually frustrated and things like that and i think there is there's been a huge overlap between uh, people who were posting on those forums and people who moved to uh, Reddit's subreddits like the Donald. I think um, Reddit is trying its best, but at some point they're really just putting band-aids over a gaping wound, which is that a lot of the people are migrating from one shutdown subreddit to another shutdown subreddit, and it's like it's for for how large Reddit is it's also very compartmentalized so i rarely come across anyone who is hateful or um you know in the pop, most popular ones like are uh, funny which is just a picture memes basically yeah. just pictures and memes yeah. um like comments get deleted or you know users get banned so it's it's hard to come across this stuff if unless you're like really sliding down into it or you're actively seeking it out um but yeah i'm just glad that reddit is like it's it's trying to um clean up its image and its website um and you know taking a much more responsible view of their platform as opposed to certain other social media platforms a la facebook for example
1: Mm. Yeah, they're, they're not promising to fix the problem outright, but they're certainly willing to engage with it. And I think um, taking some responsibility for their role in promoting and, and hosting and giving a home to this kind of hate speech, and I think that's certainly a more responsible approach than what we've seen from Facebook and their sort of very hands-off, not, not my circus, not my monkeys kind of attitude. Yeah. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that these sorts of platforms, Reddit, um, Facebook instead of TikTok and then the darker spaces of the web, the 4chans and 8chans and altchans of the world. Like, they are only seeing increased use since we've gone into this pandemic. Um, so apparently um, there's been up to 50% increase of online communities this year since this pandemic um, started. So there's an interesting piece on Washington Post about the sort of pain and difficulty for sort of volunteer moderators trying to keep their individual communities civil, you know, constructive and, and like their, their sort of individual roles in trying to moderate speech. Um, and it's, it's just sort of mind blowing to consider just the amount of text, the amount of speech that's being generated and the idea that individuals should be like tackling this is almost, it's almost like, you know, standing in front of the shore, like holding your hands out and trying to hold back the tide. It's just so much work. Um, and, and, you know, not to say that I'm pitching automation, because as we all know, the capacity of our machine learning and NLP systems to d- correctly detect hate speech is actually uh, way lower than we would like it to be. And it's it's uh, it's likely to moderate or deny speech that is totally fine or is just left of center or, you know, just quirky as it is to actually pick out the, the wolf whistles and the really problematic speech. Um, and interestingly, this is like a sort of Contextually, this is about that, that sort of difficult and uh, nuanced problem of the way that language morphs over time, the way that like, you know, you could say, you, here, here's an example. Um, up until, you know, maybe a year and a half ago, I could say, all lives matter. And you'd be like, sure okay, that's a weird thing to say, but sure, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be problematic. <laughs> yeah. But if I said that now, you'd just be like, Laura, you racist, move yeah. Read the room, exactly. <laughs> like, what, what the heck is wrong with you? Um, and, and you'd understand the context, the sort of, manifold history behind that word and why it's so problematic to say like all lives matter and why that's like pushing back and pro white supremacy etc um so so, like we have to we have to understand that these things morph and change and evolve very rapidly so any nlp that's been trained on a data set that's even six months old is immediately like behind the curve so you can't imagine any way for this to work that doesn't have active learning, that doesn't have like continuous like data inputs and that doesn't have very strong moderation from the people who are putting that data in to be like, this is a problem, this is
2: okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah. th- this may not be like the biggest issue as well, but they've also um, highlighted the, that they're like proponents of free speech up to a point. Like they're, um, they're trying to take on hateful... Subreddits, but not taking on distasteful subreddits. So they're actually distinguishing between, uh, you know, things that are actively encouraging hate and just things that, you know, are a little bit weird or you know, left of center. Or um, which I think kind of gets swept under the rug this free speech argument yeah, these it can days.
0: It's hugely and, problematic, can't yeah. It?
2: In this like black and white society that we're finding ourselves in these days, where it's like people only want to see their own view um i think yeah the the fact that they're also focusing on that as well is super important and it's not just like they're actually trying to create a um a place for discussion or you know for what whatever quirky weird interests you have that some may find offensive but yeah. you know it's not um just because they find it offensive doesn't mean that it's uh you're hurting anyone or um yeah yeah i think that's that's huge and 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 i'd say it's
0: twofold there you sort of said where people only want to hear their own views but i think we could also say that so many of the algorithms kind of push um higher levels of engagement with their content online encourage people towards more and more extreme views than what they already have so they push them along that spectrum And, and that's you know a huge part of the problem
2: yeah absolutely and the i think that uh I would say that we're all on the left-leaning side of things, so I'm always interested to see how people get pushed towards uh, the alt-right or, you know, at least more right. I guess it depends on your your original leaning and how much further you get pushed along your side of the spectrum. Mm. But um, there, there are um, Reddit posts about how alt-right it, um, attracts young men through memes. Like uh, they, you know, present...
0: Yeah, famously, um, Peppy the Frog. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. And there's a documentary coming out about that that I'm really, oh, really? interested Yeah, about the creator trying to reclaim the, the yeah, art. He's
0: devastated, isn't he, yeah. that, that mm. his frog has been misused. Yeah.
2: Um, and uh, I think it, it comes down to a lot of uh, like this kind of stuff is basically just progress. No. And that's where a lot of uh, Reddit's problems come from, where you can post a meme that's like progress, no. All the answer has to be is no. And that pushes a lot more people towards, or, or you know, young vulnerable men in this yeah. case towards alt-right um, sensibilities. And it's interesting,
0: edits. isn't it, that that is, you know, they've distilled down a conservative message to progress no. Mm.
2: Or it's mm. it's like a very uh, easy slalom to go down. You start with one meme, it leads to the next meme, and then eventually they become more and more politically charged and attract uh, the lulls that way.
0: Yeah, I think um, it must be a very challenging time to be a parent and, and trying to monitor, you know, kids' usage of, of the internet, uh, particularly things like YouTube, when it's so easy to stumble off a very valid and, and laudable kind of uh, educational or entertaining path there and suddenly be in a, a trash fire of, um, of extremist content.
2: Yeah.
1: I have um, a perhaps spicy take to offer about the, like the, the forms of polarization we're seeing. And, and I think it's sort of like, this is my take. So, you know, full, full disclosure in my view, I think it's it sort of boils down to this fact that it's easy to have this creeping unease that something's not working in the world that things aren't quite right that there's something wrong, and the difference between the left and the right and especially the ultra conservative or extreme right is that the left is like yeah something's wrong but you know now we splinter out into a million left wing ways of fixing it and like there's just so many opinions and there's no easy answers it's just like this ugly you know set of rabbit holes whereas like so much of the the ideology and the, the discourse on the right is just like it's all wrong and guess what they're to blame or it's, it's you know like they look for these like easy sort of memeable consumable little answers that tell you what, what the cause of the problem is or who you should be angry at or who should who you should sort of like direct that feeling at and i think that's like it's understandable as, as problematic as it is, it's understandable to be to find this sort of sense of like there being a real base for the problems, like and a place to direct your frustration, a place to direct your anger. Like I can I can understand where that comes from. It's just. It's a sort of, like, lazy failure to critique and think and, like, you know, this desire for this, this like, kind of simple worldview that, like, makes you feel in control and makes you feel like you've got some kind of agency. Um, and, you know, like, who wants to know that they're just, like, subject to the chaos and insanity and that, you know, really the people in charge don't know what the heck they're doing?
0: <laughs> it's so true. They're learning on the job, just like mm. we are here.
1: Independently
0: yours. Triple R. 102.7. A new national survey from Monash University finds Australians to be relatively positive about the growing use of artificial intelligence in society, but concerns remain around privacy and threats to jobs. Professor Neil Selwyn from Monash University's Faculty of Education joins us to tell us more about the survey and its findings. Welcome Professor Neil Selwyn.
3: Hi, thanks very much. Lovely to be here.
0: Great to have you with us. We've had our fair share of tech problems this evening ourselves, but that's the tech show. we got to roll with the punches. So thanks for joining us. So I guess the first thing we wanted to know a little bit about is just tell us about the survey itself um, and a bit about how it was conceived and, and the size of it.
3: Yeah, so um, I'm a social scientist. I'm not actually a computer scientist. I'm really interested in society and technology. Uh, So we ran a nationwide nationally representative survey of just over 2,000 Australian adults, so people that were eligible to vote. And I was super interested in what the kind of general public knew about artificial intelligence and also what their views were, particularly about this idea of AI for social good, which I guess you guys are, you know, you talk about a lot.
1: We certainly do. Maybe Um, our pet project. (laughs) Go for it, Laura. Oh no, I, I'm oh, I'm so okay. cu- I'm so curious about um the the size of the this piece of work and um you know the the scope of the number of topics you touch on. It's it's really a pretty serious piece of work. Um, can I ask how did you how did you sample people how did you find people to participate and and um, how did you find I, I know as someone who does a bit of research myself it can be very hard to get people to take a three question survey and it seems like this would be a bit more than that so how did you find it was it challenging did it, was it difficult to get people to um, get all the way through the sort of scope of the survey and um and yeah how how did you find people to participate
3: well there's we were following in the footsteps of a few surveys I mean there was a big um, Oxford University survey of the states done a couple of years ago with 2000 uh, people, and a lot of these surveys, and ours did as well, use online panel surveys. So these are people every month that are representative of the general population, um, and market research companies, universities can use them as a kind of as a, a, a pool of people to draw upon. Um, when we actually kind of got our slot with the panel, we were told that actually people would be super interested in this because I thought 70 questions on AI would bore everybody <laughs> witless. They said, no, no, no. Normally, they're answering questions about cheese or cars. So especially <laughs> asked about, And you're right. I mean, we were expecting dropouts. And we had things in the survey that kind of kept people going. Um, and we, we had a really good response rate. Um, and what was interesting as well, and this we might come to this later, I was... had no idea what people would know so at the very very beginning we asked people you know do you support the idea of ai and then after the survey which is about 20 minutes long and it has some quite in-depth stuff about how ai could be used for for kind of good and bad and social goods and need for registration at the very end we said having being told all this stuff, what do you now feel about AI? And so one of the things we found was even after taking a ton a 20-minute survey with 70 questions, people were quite prepared to change their minds, which kind of got us to one of our main findings was that, yeah, if you give people information and a little bit of public education about AI, people are willing to kind of take it on board and, you know, make their own decisions, which is really, that was a really surprising finding.
0: Gee, if only we could provide more of our information in survey form than in social media form, maybe that would work for us. <laughs> Um, So, just let's walk through from the very beginning here, um, when you've got a a newbie survey taker, uh, did you think that many of those surveyed grasped the breadth of influence that AI could have, or did they tend to focus initially on, say, a specific use case and and really tie AI as a concept to something perhaps out out of, you know, cultural artifacts?
3: Sure. I mean, the first thing we did before we actually kind of told people and gave people definitions of what AI AI was, just said, what do you understand? What's the first thing that would come to mind if you were asked about AI? And we got some really interesting responses there. I mean, surveys that have been done in the past often find, as you say, these kind of cultural signifiers. So people will mention movies or specific movies. Terminator comes up again and again. And there's another really interesting piece of research I found, found that Every uh, decade has specific things that people would point to. So in the 80s it was kind of um, kind of Star Wars and weapons and chess, and in the 90s people had moved on to kind of Google searches. And, and today it's autonomous cars so it's the next big thing in AI so we had a, we had about 30 percent of people gave responses that were pretty broad and robots was a very kind of generic thing that people would talk about but one of the things I was very pleasantly surprised was that there was a high level of more advanced question uh, more advanced kind of answers people actually kind of grasped the basic idea that it's computers using data and learning from data to make decisions uh, when presented with more data and in contrast to other surveys that have been done around the world we found slightly slightly higher levels of kind of more, more kind of plausible explanations of what AI was, which was great. I mean, that's a basis to be working from. And once we gathered what people thought it was, we then began to say, well, actually, AI is X, Y and Z. And it can be used for A, B and C. What do you think? And as I said, at the end, we kind of then asked people to reflect. So people were actually a little bit more. Um, there was a bit more kind of public un- awareness and understanding than we probably expected.
1: Would you, would you say that um, the public's understanding of the applications of AI and the sort of potential goods and harms was, was, um, you know, like conversant with the pace of change, um, knowing that, like, as someone who's working in AI, you might be following one specific field and still not be able to keep up with the research. Like, it's a, it's, I think, a genuine, like, serious concern that, like, what's actually possible and how we talk about that in the, in the general public, um, there's, there's, like, a significant lag, and we know that it can be very hard to express the subtleties and the the changes that are happening, like sort of pacing, pacing um, week on week, month on month, year on year, um, particularly in the past decade.
3: Well, absolutely, you're right. And one of the things that we were really interested in doing was saying, well, actually, people that work in AI don't necessarily have a kind of nailed-on definition of it. So it's really interesting to kind of see what public understandings were. And we're not saying that the public are wrong and experts are right. And there has to be some kind of mutual dialogue between the two. It's really interesting that people think of robots and robots taking jobs, when a lot of people in AI don't even think about um, replacing jobs. That's not what they're in, in it for. So we weren't going from a deficit approach. You're right. Once we got past the kind of basic understanding so we found a few things which are not surprising from the literature. So one of these things is, is the superhuman human. People often talk, tended to talk about AI in terms of AI, computers at least being at the level of human intelligence. And as you as you know, you know lots of AI is, is very kind of narrow AI, dumb AI. It's Siri and Google Search. It's not lethal autonomous weapons. But people tended to look towards those sort of more future-looking things. The other interesting questions which we actually borrowed from the Oxford survey was a question about high-level machine intelligence or general AI, which is a big, as you know, is a big controversial area. A lot of people don't ever think it's going to happen. And we were just really interested, when do you think? In 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 50 years' time? so we were trying to kind of prod people into kind of these more speculative um, sci-fi type um, ideas of what AI was. Most people were actually quite happy to push back on that front. And so well, I don't really think there's going to be general AI in 10 years. Um, I was surprised, actually, about half half of the respondents thought there would be within 50 years. But I mean, you know, by then, who knows? So, yeah, people were kind of looking. to. So one of the things I thought from um, the, our findings was that there is a need to actually kind of demystify the kind of very prosaic AI that we have at the moment. To kind of get people thinking about the AI that's in their phone or in their laptop um, rather than things that might be five, ten years down the line. Because those things that we have now are the things that we actually need to be kind of legislating or at least having a conversation about. Um, not just imagining, you know, do we need to kind of ban lethal autonomous weapons in 10 years' time? I'm much more interested in algorithms and you know systems than the harm that they're doing at the moment.
1: Um, there's there was a section of the research where you started to explore um, sort of the topics or verticals where um, ML might get applied and people's opinions on whether that could be used for good or if it's something that's problematic and they're concerned about it. Um, and I'm curious to know, how did you select those spaces to investigate and how much did you um, sort of prep people to, to know what it means or to give them any sort of sense of the pragmatic use cases of them versus how much would you lean on their kind of existing understanding of how is AI being used in medicine, for instance, or how is AI being used in your phone? Like is um yeah, so that's It's a really fascinating space and it's, um, you know, any one of those verticals could like be a whole deep dive in and of themselves. So I'm I'm curious to know, like, what did you what did you sort of tease out from that aspect of the research?
3: Yeah, I was particularly interested in this idea of AI for social good. I mean, that's one of the foci of of the the Monash Center that we're kind of working for. And so we were interested about potential applications of AI for social good. And we we had 12 different, um, as you say, verticals. Um, The way the survey works is quite neat. It only gives um, a respondent five verticals, and it makes sure that about 500 people answered each one. So you weren't bored to death with 12 of them. But it gave fairly in-depth definitions, which we took from um, the Oxford survey, and also McKinsey have got a really good discussion paper, AI for social good. And so it would ask people Mm -hmm. about health, for example. Um, AI can be used to address health challenges, including early stage diagnosis diagnosis, modeling outbreaks and trends. So it gives a whole range of um, examples. And then we ask questions about, well, do you think this is actually a good thing? Would you actually support this in terms of public money? Would you support it in terms of private money? How much do you think it should be prioritized? And what we found across all of those verticals was uh, high levels of of support. So we then looked at what was strongly supported. uh, And that's where it got a little bit more interesting. Um, Health and medicine were the two big Um, areas that people um, thought were well worth supporting, well worth funding, well worth, um, as you can imagine, there's a bit of self-interest there. Um, And also familiarity. You know, we can imagine what AI and health and predicting disease means. Um, Crisis response was a big one, as you might imagine, in the light of the bushfires and COVID. Environmental challenges was also very high. Um, And for all of these, what was surprising was I'm a sociologist, so I'm interested in differences. And I was convinced there was going to be differences between age groups and what party people voted for or um, income group. Very few of that. So I was amazed that AI was an area where whether you vote for the liberals or whether you vote for the greens, you generally think using AI for environmental challenges is a good thing. And so the idea that it's a bipartisan issue is really interesting. I don't think people are... Well, there's many reasons that might be, but I don't think people have necessarily got to the point where they've got a dogmatic position. Whereas I bet you if you ask the Australian public about the environment, you'd get a very polarised response. But using AI and the environment seems to be a bit of a neutraliser. So that was fascinating. Um, The one vertical which people were less supportive of was really disappointing for me, and that was culture. Um, We described that use of the AI to generate um, art or music or film or uh, other cultural art, and people weren't buying that, which is a real shame because there's some great AI stuff around.
1: Perhaps also a little bit of self-interest there.
3: Possibly, it may be a lot of artists saying, "Don't take my jobs." You're right. But it, so we were really interested in not just talking about, you know, the doom and gloom things like robots taking jobs and privacy, but you know, stuff that AI can be used for in a really good humanitarian, social, or, or environmental um, issues.
0: So Neil, how did the Australian results compare with those for the Oxford survey?
3: Well, and and other surveys as well. So this idea of people being prepared to change their mind was fascinating. We found Australians to be more positive. Now, I guess Laura doesn't sound Australian. I'm not Australian. So you could argue that that's just a bit of, you know, Aussies are a bit more chipper and and up for stuff. Oh, what Um, can I say? (laughs) Dan and I, yeah, sure. (laughs) The the American survey was fairly recent, and that was interesting because it actually found a majority of people didn't support the development of AI, which was fascinating. We found 63% of Australians to to strongly support the the development of AI. And also – agree that high, uh, general artificial intelligence, if it came along, would be a good thing. Aussies were more just more positive. Now, I've got a feeling that's because Australians haven't really faced any big AI controversies. I mean, in the US, we're going through this wave of kind of facial recognition bans, controversies over racial bias. Australia hasn't really had that. The other thing that was fascinating about Australia, sorry, was just that the trust that Australians put in public bodies to oversee AI and develop AI. There was low levels of trust for Facebook and Amazon, um, which is what you find elsewhere in the Europe and and US. But CSIRO, university researchers, Office of the Chief Scientist, Human Rights Commission, these were bodies that the majority of Australians said, yeah, we we trust these people. to." And again, you could say that's naive or you could say that's an optimistic and maybe a positive thing that we can build on.
1: Um, it's interesting because that's something I've heard very much discussed in the context of COVID and the fact that Australians have much stronger trust and confidence in their public bodies to look after their their well-being and perhaps as typified by, um, you know, us surviving the Victorian lockdown with like perhaps much better results than you might see in a similar space like Connecticut, for example, which has seen much worse in terms of their outcomes. But I digress. So keeping in mind that we are perhaps a little bit away from the the hustle and bustle of AI development and and that we we're not perhaps as in tune with some of the like big research and big um, corporate developments, R and D arms that are happening elsewhere in the world. What what does Australia need to do, and what maybe should the public policy and the, the government services be thinking about in terms of putting putting in place protections or um, resources to, to help us? Um, and do you do you see there being an uh, application of the research results that you've um, that you've been sharing with us into the sort of definition of public policy to think about what is needed or, or how we should be thinking about designing um, policies and rules to support the growth of that industry in a safe and responsible way?
3: Yeah, I mean, we we had questions about regulation and and setting up, and there was very strong support for setting up a body to oversee AI. There was very strong support for regulation. And I think there is, whenever you ask a public survey, do you support regulation? Everyone says, yes, we should. And in some ways, that's not how AI regulation and AI governance works. It has to be a joined up thing between industry, civil society and government. So in some ways, there's a bit of a kind of education conversation that we need to have about how nuanced all of this is. It's not just as simple as setting up an you know, Australian commission for AI that's going to sort everything out. So I guess one of the, the biggest take home message for us from art was that we really wanted some kind of pu- public education push to promote awareness, to develop more nuanced public debates about what AI is and what AI we want and what AI we don't want. Because, I mean, the reason we did this was because I think this decade is AI is going to be one of the big ticket issues we're going to have to make big decisions as individual citizens and communities about what AI we want to fund, what AI we want to, how we want it to be governed or regulated. And, you know, as a country, we're going to be voting on these things. Um, and we want people to fully understand what they're doing. So a public education push would be great. But I think one of the interesting things for me, because I'm super interested in issues of ethics and fairness, accountability, transparency, is maybe we need to row back a bit and actually first have a very basic public awareness campaign or push for what AI actually is, particularly the narrow points of AI, get people to actually realize what the personal relevance of AI is to their everyday lives, develop and expand language around it, have a more nuanced vocabulary. And Again, from asking people, did they actually have an awareness of AI, I think we really need to reach out the minority of the public who said they had no knowledge of what it was when we asked them. And that was older age groups, lower income households, lower levels of education attainment, all the demographics that historically are among the most likely to re- directly experience the adverse consequences of the deployment of automated technology. So I think we really need to work hard to get a proper kind of national conversation going, build upon the positives and you know the, the kind of the, 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 the can-do attitude that we found but also not be naive and just kind of, you know, wade on in there and set up a government um, agency. Um, you know, we, Australia could, this could be an actually really good opportunity for Australia to kind of set itself apart. And we've got people like the you know, um, Genevieve Bell, for example. She's what a fantastic figure she is in the 3AI Institute and Data61. There's great stuff going on. We can build on that.
0: Definitely. It uh, sounds like you're becoming the optimist, Neil. Uh, so when you've released the findings of this report, you've you've done so in the context of, of certain things, including um, the fact that government analysts are warning Australia is behind the international curve when it comes to building an AI industry that will require an estimated 161,000 specialised workers by 2030. I wonder what you think the implications of the survey findings are uh, we've spoken about for public policymakers, but for the tertiary sector in this time, we know that uh, it's had a, a very rough time um, with a lack of incentives during the pandemic.
3: Yeah, and there's, it's quite well. I work in the university, so for me, it's quite a worrying development that Google, for example, is now saying they can train people to degree level programming and AI without coming to university, which you know, they would. But that's a worry. Um, so yeah, the, on the one hand, there is the need for an AI literate workforce. I'm actually more interested in in everybody else, the people who are not in the 161,000, because every worker, in a way, is going to come into contact with AI in some form or other, another. And I think we need to kind of have those conversations about where do we want AI to kind of step in and and assist? I mean, they often talk about the 3D jobs, the dirty, dangerous, and dull jobs. And actually, there's a fourth D, demeaning jobs. So what jobs do we actually want AI to be kind of stepping in? And also, where do we want AI to be supporting people in their decision-making? And where do we not want that to happen? So I work in education, so there's a big push for AI to assist teachers, for example. But where does the line stop? Do we want AI to actually, you know, start telling students what they should be learning with recommender systems, do we want AI marking essays? At what point do we actually think that human professional judgment is really, really important? So I think those sorts of employment issues are more interesting for me. And also the fact that I want unions to be involved in this, because I think this is a huge kind of labor relations union issue, and unions have to be up to speed. So that's actually the workforce I'm more interested in. Yeah, sure, we need some top-level computer scientists with ethics and with social science but we also need the rest of the workforce to engage as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, I love how well considered your response to this has been and how much you uh, invested in bringing the public along on this journey. It's something that we really care about on the show, you know, the digital literacy piece and making sure that our communities all have a say in uh, some of the really fascinating changes that we're we're looking at. Um, Dr. Neil Selwyn, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. Um, Where can people find out more about your survey and the report
3: Um, I knew you'd ask me that. (laughs) Find me on Twitter, so it's Neil underscore Selwyn, S-E-L-W-Y-N.
0: Perfect. It's uh, quite easy to find on the uh, monash.edu.au site as well. It's a fabulous uh, report. I'm still digging into the results there, so well worth your time. We are getting very close to the end of the show, and uh, Laura, I want to give you and Dan a bit of a choice Do we want some weird news of the week or a couple of events and opportunities? What are you feeling?
2: Uh, I always like weird news.
0: Excellent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I have just the weird news for you. Laura, have you seen the little one I've highlighted
1: there? Uh, Goats on Zoom is about as it is what it says on the tin, (laughs) as you can (laughs) imagine. Um, People. People love goats people have to be on zoom so now there are goats on zoom i don't quite understand what this is sure what this, what this is doing like is it letting you use the goat as your avatar no like
0: no it's... no so what there is there's a farm in the uk that has decided that they're going to diversify their offerings by oh. offering to add a goat as a call-in to your next it could be Zoom. They're on Microsoft Teams. They're on Skype. They're on all sorts of things because uh, apparently people like doing yoga with goats, and now people just like to have their online meetings with a random goat. There, I guess it's maybe it's like the sending someone a banana gram of the 80s. Maybe this is the <laughs> the equivalent. You, you add a goat to someone's meeting, and they,
1: uh... the descriptions are really really mixed. Like it's a <laughs> chef's kiss like, that you can look at the names and the characters of each goat. So Lisa, for example, is constantly hungry. And- angry and demanding. And on the call, you can expect from her passive-aggressive bleeding for <laughs> hunger and lack of any form of patience or tolerance of everything, which basically describes me at the end of a long day of Zoom calls. So I'm down for Lisa. That sounds amazing.
0: That is amazing. Hey, uh, we did want to share an opportunity this week that's Tied into our topic of the evening. So applications are currently open for the Centre of AI and Digital Ethics Summer Research Academy. Uh, this is based at Melbourne University. It's uh, designed for 20 PhD and early career researchers to come together for a series of workshops, masterclasses and seminars over this summer to network,
1: explore the challenges together, you know, collaborate over the, the pressing issues. We aim to provide participants with a shared understanding, cross-disciplines equipment them for their future research careers and it is open to recent phd grads early career researchers people who are into research as a career um, if you check out the cade website and look for the application for their summer research academy um, it should be pretty easy to google
0: perfect thank you for saving me from my terrible computer lag it's been one of those sort of evenings but so that's all right hey we want to say a massive thank you to our guest this evening professor neil selwyn very worth looking into the research uh, that Monash have been doing into AI, it's just been really comprehensive and very community focused, which is excellent to see. Hey, thanks Dan and Laura for being my co-host this evening. Thanks to our talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy for all the work she does helping us find amazing talent for the show. Hi, this is Vanessa Holker. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.